I'm going to keep going through the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to start a chapter today, chapter 11, that um, most of you are probably very familiar with, uh, the, kind of the whole picture of it, in that it's Jesus raising Lazarus by the time we get to mid-late of this chapter. Um, but this morning we're just going to take a, the first couple paragraphs and kind of see the setting leading up into that and kind of some of the stuff that's going on there. There's some pretty significant things, that details that John is mentioning here, so we'll, we'll get to those. But um, we'll just, just know that's where it's kind of working towards as we jump into it. But let's pray. Father, we know that we know that we need you to live our lives in a godly way that represents you, that pleases you. It's not anything that we can do on our own, and we are thankful that you've given us your word to tell us what you want from us, not just how to live, but just what you want us to know, what you want us to understand, what you want us to to feel, and stirring from that then how you want us to, to live and respond to the world around us, how we're to respond to you, respond to Jesus. So we ask this morning that you would by your spirit that you've given us when we trusted in Christ, that by him working in us, you would help us to understand more of who you are, how you work in our lives, and what you want from us. How it is that we can respond to you and to this world in a way that's pleasing to you. May that be the goal of our lives, the goal of every time we open up your word is we want to be more pleasing to you. So help us this morning by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There I was in the waiting room, panicked, not knowing what news I was going to hear next. Lydia had been driving over an hour to help me with a youth event and had gotten in a car accident just miles before she had gotten to the church. Her car was totaled. She was absolutely terrified when I got to the scene as she was still in the car. They put her in a helicopter to fly her to a hospital 40 minutes away and told me I couldn't go along. So I had someone, a friend from church, who drove me to the hospital, and I had to make that call to her parents on the way to the hospital and tell them what had happened. And there I sat, the first one to arrive, sitting in the waiting room, simply just waiting to hear any news of her condition. Many of you have been in a similar situation. Maybe it was a car accident, or maybe... It was somebody's surgery that had gone wrong, or maybe it was a quick onset of symptoms of someone that you had to rush to the hospital. 
and waiting rooms are awful. We hate not knowing what we're going to hear next. All we can do is sit there and imagine the best case scenario and the worst case scenario and our our mind wandering in between there and a flurry of emotions within us as we wait. Lydia's fine, by the way. (laughs) In case you haven't noticed. She's all right. She she had a little bit of a, a brain bleed, they thought. They kept her overnight, but then released her the next day and She's been fine ever since, so praise God for that. But it's not just in hospitals that this happens. It happens in life. Relationships go bad. You might question the job that you have. Your your kids might wander down a path that you wouldn't have chosen for them, and you're left waiting. Waiting to see, is Jesus going to intervene here, or... Are we going to continue down the path of the unknown or are things going to continue to seem to get worse? And while most of us dislike these waiting room moments, today's passage is a reminder for us that they're far from meaningless. When Jesus waits, it's always with a purpose. His timing is never off. And when we fix our eyes on him in the midst of our waiting, we will realize he's showing us more of who he is because he loves us and he wants us to trust him in a deeper way. So let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. John chapter 11. I'm going to do verses 1 through 16. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said, then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, like I said, many of you are familiar with what happens here in John chapter 
11, right? You know how this is going to turn out when we see just the beginning of the story here. But we often want to skip to that miraculous sign by Jesus, and if we do that, we tend to miss something that's incredibly important here from these verses. First, it's clear in John's details that Jesus has a deep relationship with this family, right? With Mary, with Martha, with Lazarus. In verse 2, we see John make a reference to Mary being the one who anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Notice, we haven't covered this story yet. John actually doesn't tell this story in the timeline of things until chapter 12. But he makes a reference to it here, even though he hasn't told the story yet, because he expects his audience to already know about her. This audience is probably already familiar, probably partially because if you remember from the story told by, I think it's Matthew tells it and says that this story of this woman will be told throughout the whole world as the story of Jesus is told. So there's this this idea that as the story of Jesus gets told, that also what Mary did in anointing Jesus is also going to be told. So John already expects his audience to be familiar with her, so he references that here. It's clear that there's a deep relationship here with Mary being the one who anoints Jesus. But what we do is we find out that Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus here. And clearly by verse 3, he's a close friend of Jesus as they tell him, Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. They found out now Lazarus is sick. This good friend of Jesus is ill. It doesn't tell us what the illness is because that's not the point. But clearly his family has some sort of serious concerns about it. They're coming to tell Jesus that he's ill. But Jesus doesn't have any concerns, if you notice. Your first point that you'll see in your handout, but it'll be up there. When Jesus waits, it is for his glory. Although others seem to think this illness is headed to death, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there's a much greater purpose being worked here. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So this illness isn't headed to death, but it's headed to the glory of God. But you say, wait a moment. Lazarus dies, doesn't he? So how can Jesus be right in saying here, this illness doesn't lead to death when Lazarus, we know, ends up dead? Because Jesus' point here isn't what's going to happen along the way, it's what's going to be the final result. His point here is, what does it ultimately lead to? Not what's the process of getting there. And in fact, that's what makes this sign so glorious, so incredible, isn't it? What seems to be the end of Lazarus' life is then overturned. He is raised from the dead to have life again. But what we see in the following verses is that Lazarus dies because Jesus waits. We find out by the time Jesus gets there, Lazarus Lazarus had already been dead for four days. But Jesus knows that when he says these words in verse 4. 
He knows that when he waits, Lazarus is going to die, but yet he still says this illness doesn't lead to death, but it leads to the glory of God, which then Jesus also restates as being for his own glory as the Son of God. Now, this can be a tough concept to grasp because a lot of times we hear the word glory and we don't know fully what to think. Glory is this hard concept for us. We see it all throughout Scripture, but we're like, what does glory really mean? You might think of bright, shining lights in heaven or thinking of Jesus or God shining light in heaven, or you might think of of angels and people praising God before his throne. But what I want to remind you of is what we've already seen about this word in the Gospel of John all the way back in chapter 1. John 1, verse 14. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the disciples saw the glory of Jesus, the glory that only the Son could display as being from the Father, and it's a glory that displays a fullness of grace and truth. Basically, what John means is Jesus as the Son is revealing who God is. Everything about God is glorious. So as Jesus reveals God, reveals the Father, full of grace and truth to the world, people then see the glory of God. The reality of who God is is being revealed by Jesus. So when we hear Jesus say, in this moment, it is for the glory of God that this illness is happening. What he's saying is that more of who God is will be displayed by this illness, by this situation. It's for the disciples to see. It's for Mary and Martha and Lazarus to see. And it's for you and me to see all these years later as we read it. It's still hard for us to wrap our minds around this, though, isn't it? We have trouble understanding how any illness or how any experience in a fallen world can be for the purpose of displaying God. How does God and His glory and who He is fit into a broken experience, an experience in a fallen world, an experience of sickness, Well, let me ask you the question, have you ever had a tragedy happen in life that on the other end of the tragedy, you ended up seeing God more clearly for who he was? I can't tell you how hard, I I can't remember the last time I prayed as hard as I did when I was up in the middle of that night with Albert with his night terrors. I can't remember the last time I prayed that much, that long, that hard, and it felt as the night went on like I was in some sort of spiritual battle. It literally felt that way. But by the end of it, or as I'm going through all of it, it's making me realize God is in control of even my son's sleep pattern. 
Or I don't know about you, but when I even get sick and I'm laying in my bed trying to rest and recover, even though I feel miserable, by the end of my sickness, during my sickness, I end up thanking God for my sickness. Because it's a reminder to me that the world keeps on turning without me. It's my way, it's God's way of using that sickness for me to look at the world and say, only one needs to hold it in his hands, and it's not me. God's the one holding it all in his hands. The world doesn't necessarily need me to continue operating. It needs God. And here's the interesting thing about both of these examples from my own life is I'm seeing more God clearly in these examples while I'm still waiting. It's not that I just, on the other end, when when Albert's night terrors finally stop, that I start to see who God is, or once I'm healed, I start to see who God is. It's in the midst of waiting for that to happen. Now, in our passage, we, we think, and I think rightly so, the main point of the passage is the problem being solved. It's the fact that Lazarus is dead and Jesus raises him from the dead. The solution does display God's glory. But in another sense, for us, all these years later, Jesus has already displayed all he needs to display to us. We've already seen clearly from Scripture everything we need to know about who God is and who Jesus is to have enough for our lives. Think about it. He lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He took on the Father's wrath for our sin that we would never be able to bear. And he's raised three days later to show that we can have new life now and for all of eternity. That one day we will receive resurrected bodies as well. When we have that picture of all the power, of all the glory of who Jesus is and who God is, we don't necessarily need an immediate sign now. We don't need some sort of miracle now. What more could you possibly need with everything that Jesus already has shown us to be true? I'm not saying he doesn't still do miracles. I think he does. Sometimes he still does do the miraculous sign. But I think we need to reorient our minds a little bit. Sometimes the glory of who Jesus is can be most clearly seen while you're waiting still. Even if the big sign you're hoping for doesn't happen, he is still working in that situation for us to see who he is. That is, as long as we are those who are in relationship with him. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't do miracles in front of unbelievers. We've already seen that happen in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. By the end of that chapter, all of them walk away from him, basically. So clearly, Jesus still does signs in front of people who don't believe in him. But John makes it quite clear in this passage, when Jesus waits, it's to display his glory to those whom he loves. And at least in this situation, it's for him to display his glory to those whom he loves. Did you catch it here? Look at verse 5. Jesus just got done saying, This illness is not to death, but for the glory of God, the glory of the Son of God. And now John jumps back to Jesus with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved 
Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. As if the point wasn't already stated enough, that Mary's the one who anointed him, that Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves, John's like, let me overstate my case for you. Jesus loves these people. He cares about these people. And he just heard that Lazarus is ill. And he just said this illness doesn't lead to death, but it leads to the glory of God. So what's Jesus about to do? Well, certainly, if he loves them, he knows Lazarus is sick, and it's not going to ultimately lead to death, Jesus is about to hightail it to Lazarus, isn't he? But then John jumps to this and says, now Jesus loves these people. So, verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Wait a minute. Just back up for a second here. Jesus loves them. He knows that he's ill. He just said the illness is for the glory of God. So he waits two more days. This doesn't make any sense. Does it? At least to us, when we first hear that, we're like, we can't comprehend that until until we take it in context of what we already know Jesus said in verse 4. That this is all working for the glory of God. To make known who God is. And all of a sudden for us, things start to align with each other now. Jesus is about to make sure that Lazarus is good and dead when he shows up. Four days, to be exact. To make sure there's absolutely no doubt that only God's glory could be on display here when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And we get now how that starts to make sense. The glory of who Jesus is, who God is, starts to be elevated by the situation by making sure Lazarus is dead when Jesus shows up. But notice, the point of these particular verses is not, it's not, to say how much greater the glory is by Jesus waiting. It's rather the people that Jesus is trying to display that glory to. Now, yes, the glory is great, and it's greater by him waiting, but the purpose of verse 5 we saw, of telling us how much he loves them, then saying he waited, shows that Jesus is trying to show this glory to a specific group of people, those whom he loves, this family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. While in other situations we've seen Jesus do signs for unbelievers, in this situation he's doing an amazing sign to display God's glory to the people he cares about, to the people that he loves. We see it a little later in the passage that Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there when this happened for his disciples' sake. So it's not just for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, it's now also for his disciples whom he loves. Now, this can also be hard for us to imagine, can it? That Jesus delays, waits, because he loves us. But let me give a quick example. 
when Sadie disobeys at home, sometimes her emotions are running so high that she cannot handle a reasonable conversation. So what do we do? We set her down on a step or in a chair, and we tell her, let us know when you're ready to talk. Now, we may walk out of the room. We may stay in the room and continue working on whatever we are working on, but we wait. And we wait because we love her. And what happens? As she sits there, sometimes one or two minutes, or more often 20 minutes, she begins to reorient herself. She begins to think through things more clearly as the emotions die out. She begins to see things in a new light and see, Mommy and Daddy aren't trying to be mean. They're trying to teach me something here. We're not trying to be angry. We're not trying to be harsh. But we love her. And we want her to be able to reorient herself to see the situation more clearly. We have to be open that God does the same thing with us. Sometimes maybe he does it because we're in sin and we fail to own up to it. Sometimes maybe somebody sinned against us. Or sometimes maybe it's just part of the broken world that we live in and God's trying to redeem the situation. But regardless of the situation, there are times when Jesus waits. But it's always with a purpose. It's always because he loves you, but he wants you to see him for who he is while you're waiting. And once we begin to see more clearly who Jesus is, it's then that we find ourselves trusting him more, which is what we see as we continue in the passage. When Jesus waits, your third point here on the handout, when Jesus waits, it is so that the sight of his glory might increase our faith. Jesus tells his disciples it's time to pack up and go back to Judea, where the Jews just tried to stone Jesus. So his disciples make known their concern. They just tried to kill you, and you want to go back? But Jesus has this interesting answer to them in verses 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now that can sound really, really confusing with the light and darkness and stumbling language and everything. But all of that simply stated, Jesus is saying he is the light of the world. And he's not going to stumble. There's a certain time for Jesus to do his ministry in this world. And his time is not over yet. So as long as the light of the world is here and the light is shining, as long as it's still within those 12 hours in a sense, he's not going to stumble. He's not going to fall into the hands where they're going to end up killing him earlier than they were supposed to. It's those who are walking in the darkness that stumble, but he is the light, so he's not going to stumble. But then he changes the conversation here, right? So he answers their question on on how he's not going to end up dead in a sense, but he does it in kind of this metaphorical kind of way. But then he goes on, he switches gears here on why they need to go in verse 11. 
After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. It's because Lazarus has fallen asleep. Interesting choice of phrase here. Just a side note for us, right? This is a good reminder for us on how we're to view death. Jesus calls death sleep because of the hope of the resurrection. Now, for Lazarus, that resurrection's coming a lot earlier than yours and mine will. But it clearly confuses his disciples. Well, if Lazarus is asleep, verse 12, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. You don't need to go back there, Jesus. You don't need to go back to the people that were trying to kill you. So Jesus has to be straightforward with them. Jump to verse 14, and he explains it. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. But then he reveals to them why this is a good thing. Now Jesus isn't saying that he enjoys Lazarus' death. Right? We actually see in the midst of everything going on, we'll get more into this in the coming weeks, Jesus weeps in this moment. Right? So it's not that he's necessarily like enjoying the moment here, but he knows that this is a good thing. It's a benefit for his disciples. Verse 15. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Jesus is glad he wasn't present at Lazarus' death. Which was the point of him waiting two days. But why is he glad? So that his disciples may believe. Now, it's already been made abundantly clear in the Gospel of John. His disciples are already believers. We've already been told that they saw his glory, that they believed in him. They already said, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? So they already seem committed to Jesus. So what does Jesus mean here by telling them, this is so that you may believe? I think what he means here, we have to take it as Jesus has a desire for his disciples' faith to increase. It's not that he's saying he hopes they'll get saved by this. It's that they already are saved and he hopes their faith will increase by him displaying more of who he is to them. Their faith needs to continue to grow. They should be growing to love Jesus in a deeper way the more their understanding of who he is grows in maturity. He displays this later. We'll see this again next week probably, but he displays this with Martha. On his way to the family, he meets her and then he asks her, do you believe? We already know Martha believes, right? She's in this deep relationship already. She's one of this family that Jesus loves, but he still asks her if she believes, and she makes this clear statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus clearly has this concern, not just that people would believe to be saved, but those who have already believed would increase in their faith. Have you ever dealt with someone putting up conditional trust for you? Have you ever had a child tell you, you don't really love me unless you do this for me? I'll wait, but your love for me is only going to be proven if you perform this sign for me. That's not Jesus here. 
If you catch it, while yes, Jesus is going to do a sign, Jesus is clearly concerned in the faith of his disciples while they're waiting to see the sign. Or he asks Martha about her faith, her belief, before he ever does the sign. He wants their faith to increase in the midst of waiting. And then we see a clear display of that as we get to the last verse. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is Thomas, right? The one that we think is Mr. Doubt. And he makes an unbelievable statement of belief here, right? You might read this and you think, well, he's just kind of given up on life. This is a statement. He, he could have laid off and said, okay, I'm walking away like those others did in chapter 6. I'm walking away. I, I, this isn't what I want. But instead, it's a statement of his belief, his commitment to Jesus. He's saying, well, maybe we won't see this great sign and then know for sure who Jesus really is. He's not expecting that. So we see your last point on the handout. Those who have faith trust Jesus in the waiting and in danger. His disciples watched him. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, and Jesus waited two more days before leaving. Then Jesus tells them he's dead. They must have put these two together. Lazarus died while Jesus was waiting. And now Jesus says we have to go to him. I highly doubt, even with their faith, I highly doubt the disciples probably had in mind, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Especially when we see what Thomas says here. Thomas says, let us go die with Jesus. This is clearly not an expectation of raising someone from the dead, but he's expecting more death to be added to the situation. But he trusts Jesus. He trusts Jesus not only in the waiting for the two days, but even to the point that he's saying, my life may end with following this guy back to Judea. In the waiting and in the danger. Church, we have to ask ourselves, is this what our faith looks like? I know there's all sorts of political talk about what's going on in Afghanistan, but put that all aside right now and just consider the Christians in Afghanistan right now. The Christians who wake up on Sunday morning knowing the Taliban is running their city. The Taliban, who's already sent many of them messages saying, we know who you are and we're coming for you. And these Christians still go to church. Now some of you may ask, why not be more like the church in China and do it underground and stay in secret and things along that. But that's besides the point here. The point is, is your faith match the faith of Thomas in this situation? Plain and simple, would you die for Jesus? If you knew that worshiping together, whether public, like in this building, or secretive in people's houses or something, either way, if you knew that that could potentially result in your death, would you continue to do it? Would you continue to say, I'm still going to meet with other believers and worship our king and seek his glory, even if it means death. 
Those who have real faith trust Jesus in the waiting and in the midst of danger. There's no question about it. True disciples will die for Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, when you face these moments of Jesus waiting in your life, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond when following Jesus means not knowing if he's going to do something or when he's going to do something? While we certainly see an amazing sign in John 11 and Lazarus being raised from the dead, we all know it doesn't always work out that way. God doesn't always give a miraculous healing. God doesn't always give us a break from that person who's given us a hard time for being a Christian. Or clearly displayed in Afghanistan right now, God doesn't always provide a way out for those who are facing death for being Christians. In fact, I would argue most of Jesus' disciples' lives are pure examples for us that life doesn't always work out with a safe passage to many years. But will you still trust him in those moments? Consider what we see this morning in this passage and ask yourself if your heart can say amen to these truths. That when Jesus waits, he does it for his glory, not yours. When he waits, he's displaying his glory to those whom he loves. It's not some random choice, or it's not some evangelism technique here in this passage. It's for those whom he loves to see him more clearly for who he is. And as we see him more clearly in the waiting, it's so that our faith might be increased. That we might trust Jesus more than we did before, that we might find ourselves more heavenly minded than we were before, that we might follow him even more willing to pay whatever cost we have to to follow him. Whether Jesus waits or even leads you into a situation that seems to be risky, will you still trust him? Let's pray. Father, we...